There may be pain in the night, but joy comes in the morning. And this is what God is saying as He closes out the book of James. When the oceans rage, I don't have to be afraid. Amen? Because why? Because He loves me. And His love never fails. I love this song. That's kind of the sermon, so um, we could leave. Uh, I'm not going to put it to a vote or anything. I haven't preached in two weeks, so sometimes that's a problem for me. It kind of gets pent up, you know, and it's, yeah, if you're not a preacher, you wouldn't understand. By the way, you guys, do I need to turn the heat down or is it okay? Everybody's okay? Okay. Uh, Some of you in here, some of you have reached a certain number of years and you may have been to the bottom uh, or close to the bottom. You know, when your world blows up, uh, one day you're living your life and the next day that life is gone. Um, We see it in the book of Job. Some of you may have experienced something like that. Some years ago, I was just living my life and over a period of 18 to 24 months, I lost my family, my home, my ministry, my job, and I discovered I was financially broke. Um, It was a perfect storm in my life. Um, I had lost my health, so I wasn't as low as Job was, but I was low. It was an emotional shock. I was numb. I was numb for a long time. Just a lot of hurt and a lot of loss and a lot of trauma. Before that storm, I would have told you that I was a super-duper Christian man and I could take anything Satan could throw at me. Well, I was humbled. uh, Tremendously humbled. I can still remember running into one of my good friends at a gas station late one night and he asked me how it was going. And I said, it's not going good at all. And uh, I was broken. And that's not always a bad thing for somebody walking with God. So, Long story, very, very, very short. I learned a lot about myself during this time, and I learned a lot about God. I came face to face with just how weak and feeble and puny my Christianity was, and I came face to face with an awesome, gracious, forgiving, and loving God who would not let go of me during this time. He was so long-suffering and tender with me. He faithfully disciplined me, taught me, comforted me, empowered me, and brought me through very much stronger. I don't remember the pain and the hurt and the loss and the heartbreak as much as I remember Him. I remember Him with me. I remember Him holding me. And even as I cried, I knew the joy. This song was perfect. The joy would come. 
the joy would come back. Just because He is who He is. So I wanted to share that with you so you'll know what to do. When the storm comes, you fall on God. That's what Christians do. We fall on God. It's really how James is finishing the book. He's exhorting us to fall on God in prayer. That's really how he ends this beautiful little epistle. And as you all know, I had somewhat of a storm the last two weeks. And people ask me about it, and I don't mind you asking me about it. I'm happy to talk about it. I think it's important for Christians to talk about death. Not gloss it over. Not make up fairy tale stories. Not say, say things that aren't true, but to talk about it in light of Scripture. And I'm happy to answer any question that you have. I'm happy to do it. Our God is God. He is sovereign in life and death. Blessed be the name of God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is where the Christian comes. This is where we land. So we know what to do in the storm. It's okay to cry. It's not okay to question God. It's not okay not to fall on God and simply trust God. That's what God expects you to do when the storm comes. God expects you to cry out to Him in prayer. Give Him my best regards. We know from the very first verse of this book that James is writing to a dispersed people. They're not, they're, they're not away on holiday. They're away because their lives are in jeopardy. They are a dispersed and persecuted people. The first chapter there, you may remember, he's exhorting his congregation. James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Understand, Christian, when the storm comes, God is making you complete and perfect in conformity with Jesus, that you would lack nothing. God is going to work in the storm. God is not absent in the storm. God is present in the storm. And He means to change you radically in the storm. Don't question the storm. Cry out to God and tell Him to have His way with you. That's what the storm's about. It's always what the storm is about for the Christian. It's not that God is unfaithful. It's that God is infinitely faithful. And God is going to change you. His hands are going to press down on the soft clay. And He's going to change you in the storm. So throughout this little book, James says this is how Christians operate. We believe God. We trust God. We do the Word. Even in the hard place, we do the Word. We do the Word. We obey the Lord. Yes, we're vapors on the earth. He's told us this. We're vapors upon the earth. James 4.14 You're a vapor upon the earth. And as I said earlier, 
Our days are ordained. They are numbered. They are limited. We never know if we're going to wake up again. We don't know. We simply don't know. My son sat down on the couch to watch television. He died. He never got up. We don't know. Death is coming for each of us. As Bible believers, we shouldn't be shocked. We know it's coming. It's coming for us. But death has no sting for us. Amen? <laughs> and as the Apostle Paul says, it's very much better to be with Jesus. So as we have seen, James closes his book the same way he started it. At last time we were together, we, we saw this. He's talking about trial. He's talking about persecution that every Christian encounters. James 5, 7-11, the last time we were together, he's exhorting us to be patient in our trials and do not complain because the Lord is coming quickly. The Lord is coming quickly. He reminded us of the patience of the suffering of the Old Testament prophets. He reminded us of the endurance of Job and his suffering. And He reminded us of the compassion and mercy of God in dealing with Job. It's what I remember when I was pretty close to the bottom. I remember the compassion and mercy of God. I don't remember much of anything else. I remember the faithfulness of God. And how He radically changed me through it. How His hand was always holding me. Even when I was crying, He was holding me. This is an awesome thing about our God. It's an awesome thing. He is a faithful God. That brings us to verse 12, chapter 5 of James. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, neither by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under Judgment. A superficial reading here would say, well, why is this in here? We just got through talking about uh, trial and difficulty and perseverance in, the, in persecution and hard times. And suddenly he's talking about, again, this will be the fifth time, I believe, I didn't count it today, but I think it's the fifth time in the book of James where God is talking to us about our tongue. It does seem that it might be somewhat out of place here. But what I want you to remember is James is addressing people who are in the midst of persecution. These are people under pressure. So he talks to them about their tongue again. Right? How do you speak under pressure? How do you speak when a loved one dies? Will you honor Christ? Or will you accuse Christ? How do you speak when you're under pressure? It's what James is saying to us. It's one of the things that James is saying to us. God says, do not swear. Do not swear, even under pressure. It's one of the hallmarks of true Christianity. We guard our tongues. You all know what I'm talking about. Everybody in here that's a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. Your tongue changes. Sometimes your heart is slower to change. Sometimes you feel things in your heart and in your mind, but you've, 
You are gaining control of your tongue. Your tongue has changed. It's just one of the things the Holy Spirit begins to do almost immediately. So James is talking about a specific kind of swearing here. It has to do with swearing an oath and or misusing God's name in swearing. As you know, I don't have to tell you, the, the world is full of liars and lies. Unbelievers must swear to one another because nobody tells anyone else the truth. And so they feel the need to swear by God or by some other thing, heaven and earth, some of, some, some of God's creation, because the world is full of liars. They swear oaths. Or as the Jews did, they swear by heaven and by earth. James says real Christians don't need to swear to God. We don't throw God's name around flippantly or carelessly. We do not casually invoke the name of God. It's what James is saying to us, even if we're under pressure. It's one of the big ten. Exodus 27, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. James has done it three or four times throughout the letter. He's going to echo his half-brother who is the Son of God. James is going to echo what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, Make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of His feet. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is evil. This is the direct and clear and unambiguous instruction of God to His people. Christians can sin and err with their tongue, but it's not what's in our heart. It's not the unbroken pattern of our lives to swear and to use God's name carelessly. We are not liars. We do not use His name in vain. We are careful and we are reverent with the name of God. I know the name of God and the name of Jesus Christ. I know it's a slang in the world. I know it's a curse word in the world. I know it's a swear word in the world. And I have been known to challenge people with the use of that out in the world. But Christians are careful. We are careful with the name of God. We are reverent when it comes to the name of God. At the end of verse 12 here, you see um, God's reference to judgment. And this is a clear reference, as James has made reference several times throughout the book, it's a clear reference to, to hell. He's saying those who speak and live in this way, who habitually swear who habitually flippantly use the name of God, who break their oaths, who lie, who throw His name around in a careless way, they are revealing by their tongue they are not Christians at all. And we know this is true. Cultural Christianity is everywhere. People say, well, I'm a Christian. Millions of people say they're a Christian, but you, you find no genuine love for Christ in their life. You find no genuine obedience in their life. In fact, they speak like they've never read the Bible. And they're careless with the name of God. Cultural Christianity is epidemic in the world. 
It's just epidemic. But the people of God understand we are careful and reverent when it comes to the things of God and with our speech. You remember we, we've covered it already in, in this series, Proverbs 6.17, one of the seven things that God hates, a lying tongue. And you may remember we talked about this, Revelation 21.8, in the context of final judgment. God is talking about all of these horrific sins and He, he includes there, He says, liars! God hates a liar! He's truth, capital T, truth. God is truth. He speaks truth. He expects His people to live truth and to speak truth. And a lying tongue betrays, a lying tongue betrays either gross immaturity or an unregenerate state. Someone who is not born again. Our God is truth. He says, let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. And let that be the end of it. Verses 13 to 15. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Among good conservative theological scholars, there's legitimate differences of opinion on this text and what the true focus of this text is. Some hold the view that these verses are principally focusing on physical healing, that above all else, the passage is teaching us how to be physically healed. Of course, if you take that view, you must reconcile verse 15 with the rest of Scripture and church history. Verse 15 seems to indicate that healing is always assured if we follow this formula. But I want to raise the question, is that what the text is actually saying when we look at Scripture taken as a whole. I tell you this all the time, Scripture interprets Scripture. This keeps us from running off on tangents. Scripture interprets Scripture. So what do we see in the balance of Scripture with regard to healing? What does church history tell us? What does your own experience teach you? Is the text really talking about the certainty of physical healing if we simply have enough faith. So parenthetically, let me make a comment here. Um, I've told you before that I'm not a cessationist. Does anybody know what that word means? <laughs> a cessationist means that you no longer believe in uh, signs and wonders. You no longer believe that God is active in the world healing. Now, there are many substantial theologians who are cessationists. And they make a pretty good argument about sensation, uh, the, the cessation of the miracles of God. That it was only used during the time of um, the, the infancy of the Gospel to, to give credit to the message. Again, I'm not a cessationist. The reason I'm not a cessationist is because the Bible actually never says that. God never takes signs and wonders off the table. 
Again, some people want to make an argument. I do not find such an argument compelling. I'm a simple man. <laughs> if I can't read it here, then I, I, I have a hard time. I have a hard time buying what someone might be telling me. Having said that, I've never witnessed a miraculous healing, but I don't put God in a box on this. God can heal. Thanks, brother. God can heal if He chooses to heal. I don't have a problem with that. It's certainly God's prerogative. Having said that, and I'm still talking parenthetically here, I want to make clear to you that I detest the hype, the self-aggrandizement, the fraud, and the greed of many so-called faith healers. It's interesting to me to note that the New Testament does not talk about people in the church who are known as healers, nor does James mention such a person in the text. James says, "Be." Uh, James seems to be unaware of the existence of superstar healers who simply show up and heal on demand. James doesn't say here to call in the big name healer if someone is sick. What does James say? He says, call in the elders, men who know how to pray. This is what James says. This is what the Word of God says. So if we read our Bibles, we understand that even the Apostle Paul was unable to heal on demand. The Apostle Paul did not heal on demand. Read your Bibles. Yes, he healed in Lystra and Ephesus and Philippi and Troas. But Paul could not heal himself with regard to the thorn of the flesh or from his ailment in Galatia or apparently Timothy's stomach condition or Epaphroditus or Trophimus. Sometimes Paul healed. Sometimes Paul didn't heal. Again, this was all in the sovereign context of what God's purpose was. Sometimes God heals. Sometimes God does not heal. You can't read your Bible and not understand this. You have to have some kind of alternative agenda to say that every Christian can be healed on demand. This is false. You might be healed. God might heal you. But He might not. And we leave it with God. The, the mature Christian just leaves it with God. Whatever you choose to do, O oh Lord, it's good with me. It's good with me. I don't demand that you perform in accordance with my expectations. God, do your will. And I know I've been saying this a lot lately, but I'm really stuck on this. In my own prayer life, I've come to this place. Hallowed be your name, O God, and your will be done. And it's like I don't need to pray anything else. That may be hard for some of you to understand. And yes, we are invited to to bring our petitions to God, praise the Lord. I bring my burdens to God and I throw them off. But most of the time, I tell you what, I've gotten to this place where I say, Hallowed be your name, great God, and your will be done. How could His will be anything other than what is perfect? It can't be, beloved. It can't be. So my view, close parentheses, my view is I do not believe the text is focusing principally on physical healing. 
I believe the text is talking about spiritual healing. This view seems compelling to me for three reasons, and I'll give them to you. The context, the original language, and the illustration that James uses with respect to Elijah. First, the context. The context here is suffering and persecution of these dispersed Jews. As I said, they're not abroad on holiday. They're abroad because they are being persecuted, because they are facing death. James talks about it here. He mentions it seven times in six verses. James mentions the word prayer. This is all about crying out to God. That is the focus of the text. Crying out to God in the storm, in the hard place, in the persecution, in the suffering. Cry out to Me. And leave it with Me. Can you not trust God? Leave it with God. I always love that illustration of John Piper praying with his wife over a long period of time. And he said, I finally realized I was nagging God. I had stopped petitioning God and I was simply nagging God. It's easy for us to cross over into that error, I believe. God says, pray in the storm. This is an awesome thing that God allows us to do. We get to cry out to Him. We get to own our own impotence and acknowledge His omnipotence. James is saying, are you persecuted? Are you suffering? Are you downtrodden? Are you wearied? Are you depressed? Are you beaten down? James says, pray! Pray. I love what Isaiah 65.24 says. There's this imagery of the impatience of God for His people to cry out to Him. You know the great text. It will come to pass that before they call, what? You know, some of you know this text. I will answer. I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. God insists upon the fact that His people should pray and He insists on answering. Whether it's yes or no. Or wait. His answer is perfect whether He heals us or not. Or He heals your son or not. Or He heals your wife or not. Will you still love Him? The true Christian answers yes through their tears. Yes, I love this great God. Who am I? I told a brother, he was asking me about the events of the last few weeks. I said, who am I to question God? Who do I think I am that I can question God about how many days my son should have? Who am I to question God? Beloved, that is not our prerogative. It is not our prerogative to question God. Listen, this God is to be worshipped. Good times, hard times, Fat times, lean times, God expects His people to worship. We don't bring accusation to God. We bring worship to God. God insists on answering prayer. 
And what, what verse is it in the Bible that governs, in the New Testament, that governs all the promises of, of prayer in the New Testament? All these awesome promises. What is the, the verse that governs all the rest of them? We know what it is. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 to 15. If you ask anything according to what? According to what? His will. Many times we're praying outside of His will. We don't even know what to pray. What does Romans 8 say? The Holy Spirit's interceding for us. The, the Son of God is interceding for us. We don't even know how to pray. So, we pray according when, he, we, when we pray according to His will, the text says, He hears and we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him as we pray His will. So verse 13 if you're suffering, pray. Verse 14, if you're weak and downcast, have the elders pray for you. Verse 16, confess your sins and pray for one another. Secondly, my view is, I think my view is supported by the original language. If you look at the Greek words here, translated sick in verses 14 and 15, and yes, I know, every mainline translation translates these words uh, sick, and it leads the, 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 the strong connotation that we're talking about physical illness here. I get that. But let me just say this about the Greek word translated sick in verse 14. It appears 30 times in the New Testament. Only half the time is it translated sick. The other meaning uh, of the word carries the, the, the emphasis of being weak, being needy, being feeble, and being without strength. Now the word translated sick in, uh, sick in verse 15, it's a different Greek word. It appears three times in the New Testament. It's translated sick here, but it's translated weary and faint elsewhere. It is interesting that the exact same Greek word used in verse 15, it's the same uh, Greek word used in Hebrews 12.3, which says, do not grow weary and lose heart. Listen, what I'm doing, I'm putting my view in front of you, and this is what I do. When there's questions, I tell you, there, there, there are people who disagree with me here, and I'm being honest with you. Some of you may disagree with me here, but I'm your pastor. God's put me in this, this redeemed garage to preach from this place for the last 12 years. It's my job to always tell you what I believe the text is saying. I don't claim infallibility. I do claim integrity. And I'm convinced that this is what the text is saying. I acknowledge there are good men and women who disagree with me on this view. It's my view the text is saying in the midst of trial, suffering, and persecution, if you're weak, if you're needy, if you're feeble, if you're without strength, if you're wearied and you're faint, if you're beaten down, you're spiritually and emotionally destitute, God is saying, pray. Pray. It's one of the mistakes I made when I was at the bottom those many years ago in that perfect storm in my spiritual and emotional weakness and weariness and exhaustion and depression. I did not pray as I should have. I did not go to the elders as I should have. I did not confess my sins to others and have them pray for me as I should have. I did not fully heed God's counsel here in this text. God says if you are sick, if you are distressed in your spirit and your soul, pray. 
the significance of the oil in verse 14. Some say it's ceremonial. Some say it has a medicinal effect. Some say it represents the presence of the Holy Spirit. While all of these assertions may in some measure be true, uh, in the first century, oil was used to refresh and soften and cleanse and revive and revitalize. I believe the oil is merely a picture of the effect that the elders' prayer, the elders' prayers have on the one who is being prayed for. The oil is a picture of refreshing and cleansing and reviving and renewal. The prayers of the elders bring to this downcast believer. It's like a spiritual massage. Actually, the literal Greek says, after having oiled him. <laughs> it's like, it's a picture of what God is doing in the spiritual realm. Listen, I don't have a problem. With, listen, if, you, if you're sick and you want, you want me to come and anoint you with oil and pray for you, I'll be there, to, I'll be there in a heartbeat. <laughs> it's what the Word of God says. I'll be there in a heartbeat. I'll come to you. Our two other elders live away, but I'll come to you. It's what the Word of God says. Verse 15, And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up if he has committed. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. God says to the weary brother and sister, I will restore your spiritual vitality Again, um, God does not always send physical healing to His children. He does always send spiritual healing. I think this is one of the important takeaways from this text. He always sends spiritual healing. That, that's part of the problem of taking verse 15 literally regarding physical healing. The Gospel is about Spiritual healing. Sometimes God heals physically. Sometimes He doesn't. But He always heals spiritually. This is what the Gospel is. By His scourging, we are healed. And John Piper, American preacher, theologian, author, says it perfectly. It is good to pray for healing. It is good to pray for healing, physical healing. It pleases God that we would pray for this. Jesus has purchased such healing for His people. But God has not promised the whole inheritance in this life. Amen? That's part of the problem with the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. They're trying to pull in the promises of eternity into this life. And that's, that's not simply an error. We know that the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is just, it's just flat out, it's just flat out Demonic. It's, it's a demonic gospel. It's another gospel. Galatians chapter 1. It's another gospel. It has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. It sells people this false hope that if you become a Christian, it's all going to be good. Well, what does the church history teach us? What does your own experience teach you? We know it's a false gospel. And we should talk against it. We should speak against this false gospel that is ensnaring millions of people in false hope. What happens to the adherent of, of the prosperity gospel once they've lost their prosperity? What happens then? 
Well, they discount all of Christianity. Well, it must not be true at all. It's one of Satan's great cons. It's one of his great cons in these last days. Verse 16, James exhorts us to pray. And prayer is raw power. Let me read that for you. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. I love here that this, this word effective as it's translated in the NAS, uh, it's, the, it's, it, it's, the, it, it's the word that we get the English word energy from. And when we cry out to God, as I said earlier, we're, we're accessing omnipotence. You know, the, the, the power that spoke 400 plus billion galaxies into existence, this is the power that is accessible through prayer. Did you notice a man's prayer can accomplish much? The little little Greek here, a man's prayer is very strong. It is not sovereign, but it is very strong. The New King James says it availeth much. Uh, It doesn't avail for all things, but it availeth much. The ESV says uh, it has great power. It's not omnipotent, but it has great power. I want you to understand that prayer is always contingent on the sovereign will of God. We do not speak what we want into existence. We are not word of faith apostates. We cry out to a sovereign God and rest in a sovereign God. It's what biblically literate Christians do. Verses 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months and he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced this fruit. This is my third reason I believe that we're talking about spiritual healing here. This is my third reason because of this illustration. Those of you who know your Bibles, think with me. If James was focusing on the physical healing here, why didn't he use Elijah's prayer for the miraculous raising of the widow of Sidon's son from the dead? 1 Kings 17.21-22 If he's talking about physical healing here, that would be the perfect illustration. Why doesn't he use that illustration? I think it's a good question. I think it's a valid question. I think it's an important question. the primary focus of the text is on physical healing. Why does he use Elijah's prayer for rain? James tells us that Elijah was a man just like you and me. And God answered his prayer. The effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. But we know, don't we? We have the whole Bible. We studied our Bible. We've walked with Christ. We've, 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 we've thrown up many prayers to our Father. So we know that prayer is not a blank check. It's never been a blank check. It's not a blank check. It'll never be a blank check. God does not give us carte blanche. It's just like you don't give your kids carte blanche. He doesn't give us carte blanche. Just because we ask for it, we're not necessarily going to get it. And listen, if you stop and think about this for more than you know, 60 seconds, you, you'll realize 
you'll come to the place, I think, where I've come to is, listen, if, if, if the answer needs to be no, I want to know, right? I want to know. God, I'm praying for X, but if it's not in your will, it's, I don't want it. Why would you want something not in God's will? Answer me that. Why would you want something not in God's will? If it has to be no, I'm happy with the no because I know, I know that the no leads me to what the yes is. Right? Love the no. Love the no. Love the no. No, Jim, I'm not going to heal. Praise God. I don't understand what you're doing, Lord, but I trust you. This is where we come as biblically literate, maturing Christians. Wow, okay. Oh, I'm getting close. Um, so I just want to say quickly, Elijah prayed and the sky poured rain. This is a picture of in my view, the refreshing and the revitalization, reviving and awakening and the aliving of a, of a spiritually downcast believer. Verses 19 and 20, My brethren, if any among you strays from the, from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It's what we've been saying all the way through the book of James. And there's some disagreement here about who James is speaking with, but my assertion, I think, all the way through the book of James is accurate. He's speaking to the wheat and the tares. Uh, the true Christian, the wheat, the, the, the true Christian who has strayed and fallen into sin, the tear, the one who only masquerades as a Christian. He has no true love for Christ. He's never really truly giving his life to Christ. He has no serious conscience about obeying Christ. It's all a game. It's just religion. I check my box. Bam. I did the Sunday thing. Bam. And I don't think about Christ anymore for the rest of the week. It's pseudo-Christianity. It's pseudo-Christianity. I think, and I think James is talking to both. I see an exhortation to both the wheat and the tares here. James says, if you turn a masquerading Christian from his error, you will save his soul from death. The second death, the eternal death. And you will cover a multitude of sins, meaning, of course, all of them as He comes to Jesus Christ. So, I've loved the study of James. It's one of my favorite books. It's a no-nonsense book. Of course, the whole Bible is this way. It's just black and white. There's no middle place here. <laughs> I love it. I love the Bible. There's no middle place. There's no equivocation. God says, My people do the Word. And in the storm, they do My Word. They trust Me in the storm. They obey Me in the storm. They worship Me in the storm. And I can't close the book of James without maybe the most famous and powerful couple of verses in the book. Let's just close that way. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 20. Just an excerpt. If you don't remember anything else about James, God willing, you'll remember this. James says to you and he says to me and every man, 
on the face of the earth. What use is it if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons believe it and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize that faith without works is dead? My son was 39 years old. He's gone. I know when he sat down on that couch to watch television and drink a beer, which is how they found him, he knew he had years. He knew he had half a lifetime left to live. He never got off the couch. And what I'm saying to you is, I want you to take these words. You call yourself a Christian tonight. Some of you are, are no question, genuinely Christian. Some of you are probably still playing a game with God. You're still playing religion. But I, I want to draw your attention to the, the text I just read. Go do your faith. Do the Word. It's what real Christians do. We do the Word. We get up every day and we do the Word. And we mess up and we sin and we fall and we fail. But then we confess our sin and we get up again and we do the Word. Amen? That's what Christians do. That's what disciples do. That's why He's left you on the planet. To do your faith. That your faith will be seen. And that men will say, why do you live this way? Why do you believe this way? And you give them the Gospel. And you tell them that you have a great Savior who has defeated death. You have an awesome Savior who's reigning and who is returning and who will reign forever. His name is Jesus. That's why you're here. Don't waste a day, man. Don't waste another day being confused about why you're here. Don't waste another day. Be, this is my word to you, apart from all that we've talked about, be a good steward of your days, beloved. Be a good steward of your days. Let's pray together. Lord, as always, <clears throat> we thank You for this text. We thank you how you treat us with respect in that you just give us the truth. You don't sugarcoat it. You don't try to make it go down easy. You tell us that you're God and you're awesome. And oh yeah, I'll die on the cross for your sins. Lord God, forgive us when we think lightly about this, when it becomes a casual thought to us, when it just becomes dogma to us. When it's just some religious thing I say I believe. How can we believe that and not be radically changed? How can we believe that the great Creator God is on a cross because He loves me? How can we believe that, really believe that, and live like the world? It's impossible. Lord God, we love You. Each one of us, as You know, are weak and frail. And as the song says, prone to wonder. Hold us, great God. 
in accordance with Your purpose and Word as we have learned. Hold us. Change us. Mold us. And make us. Bring us into conformity with Your Son that we might be faithful in these few moments we have on this planet. We love You, great God. We love You with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and all our strength. We love You. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. We'll just dismiss. Uh, my band leader is looking at me um, in a way that makes me think we should just dismiss from, from here. And I've shared this with you before, but this is how, when I was growing up, um, we used to end each service this way. So I'll just, let's stand and I'm going to read the Word and we'll, we'll be done. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. God bless.